I don't, I don't even remember who told me this a long time ago, but you play for two teams at work. You play for the team you're on and you play for the team you coach. So for me today, I'm nursing's coach, but I'm a member of the CEO's team. That means there are two roles that I play. And the team I'm on, the CEO's team, that group of people are the people that I rely on and I trust to work on different things and keep each other informed. Because we're so busy and it's such academic healthcare and medical centers are very complex and there are a thousand things going on at one time. But because of relationships that we've made with one another on that team, we all know the position we play. Welcome to Moments Move Us, a people-first podcast unlocking the power of meaningful moments by bringing you stories that inspire. I'm your host, Rebecca Corin, and today's discussion is an important one. Today's conversation includes the indispensable role of nurses in revolutionizing the way we experience care. In this episode, Karen Grimley, Chief Nursing Executive at UCLA Health, shares how working with a remarkable team to develop a self-directed care model brings exceptional and personalized care to patients. This sets the stage for Karen's dedication to both embrace and value every single idea, no matter where it comes from. And our theme of empowerment continues as Karen shares with us her deep-seated belief in the importance of equipping patients with the knowledge and information that they need to make personal decisions about their care. It's all about empowerment today and ensuring that voices guide us in making the right decisions at the right time. So let's jump into my conversation with Karen. Karen, good morning and welcome to Moments Move Us. Thank you, Rebecca. So happy to be here today. Thrilled to have you. Karen, let's kick off our conversation today and talk about something that I know is close to your heart. Let's talk about how the role of the nurse and the nurse leader has evolved over time. And I know you've seen this from a couple of different perspectives. Maybe we could start with the role of the nurse and how you see that having changed. I think the role of the nurse, it's kind of interesting. It's changed, but it hasn't. I mean, when nurses first came into hospital environments, they came in and provided a level of surveillance, if you will, for the people who were there pending care by their physicians, whether it be having their blood pressure read regularly or some kind of poultice or whatever it happened to be. We still do that, but we do it in a more technical and complex environment. The role of a nurse doing surveillance today is much different. When you look at the complexity of the equipment, the procedures, the number of people who interact with a patient on a daily basis, the nurse's role While we've always been advocate and coordinator of care, it takes on a more heightened responsibility today. That ownership of that patient care and understanding what is truly not only in the best interest of the patient, but something that's important to the patient. We have to always guard against using our influence, our position, or our opinion when giving a patient information. The goal with a patient, for me as a staff nurse, when I used to do it at the bedside, and even today, is giving a patient as much information as I can that helps them make a personal choice about their health. One example that always comes to mind, I did a fair amount of work in neuro and ortho, 
as a young leader. And one of the most interesting things for me one day was when total joints came out and they had the basic economy model and then they have the super model for implants. Nobody ever talked to people about what their activity level was and what they planned to do when they got their new hip or knee. Some people always got a super high-end knee and others might've only got the economy model. The problem with some of that is that if you have a really active 90-year-old and you put a basic joint into that person, they may or may not be able to go play tennis. And I learned that 90-year-olds play tennis when I moved to Florida. A lot of them play a lot of sports. And then you get a 50-year-old person whose one goal in life is to watch Jeopardy every day at 7 o'clock. And they have no interest in exercise. They're very sedentary. So sometimes... What we need to do is understand the patient is a member of the team. So that nurse at the bedside needs to always make sure that not only are they keeping an eye on everything, but they're actually making sure the patient has a voice in everything. And it has to be the patient's voice, not the voice we all want it to be. And that can create personal challenges as well as professional challenges. It's interesting to think about the role of the nurse as this highly skilled surveillance entity. In addition to this sort of surveilling, it's also this piece of each patient presents as a unique person, not just room 321, this diagnosis, this next medication. And it's like, how do you balance all of the surveillance that's needed and working at the highest of your license, but also still maintaining that interest and inquiry around the uniqueness of the patient and how that could impact the care. That's what we do. One of the first things you learn in nursing school is you collect data, you assess, and you plan. But every plan that you make needs to be an individualized plan. And that's time in memoriam for nurses. With a lot of the challenges we've had, we need to be very conscientious about what our patients need. Now, multicultural, equity, diversity, inclusion, social determinants, all those different important items and issues present themselves today differently and more, I guess, readily recognizable. So it's that savvy nurse at the bedside who's doing that care planning has to possibly go beyond the day or beyond the time the patient might be in the hospital and extend conversations with other members of the team to make sure that transitions for patients are what they need to be. Because if I have a patient who's on a limited income and they have to make a decision between buying medication and buying food because of their socioeconomic situation or where they live, maybe they live in a food desert. We didn't have food deserts when I started this, but now I need to understand what they are and figure out how to solve for that. Now we have more support than we had before. We have case managers and social workers and all sorts of community resources that may not have existed 30 years ago or 20 years ago. So how do I connect that patient to the right resources as they transition home or to wherever their next stop is and ensure those occur? How do I share that information by educating the family and the patient? Because oftentimes the family is an extension of the patient and in the way we treat our patients in our organization. So it's how do you involve them and include them and help them understand what's important to their family member who is the patient and how do we ensure that we keep people whole, you know, the family unit whole, the patient whole and supported across their life's continuum, not just that 
millisecond when they're in the hospital. It's interesting to think about like patient as part of the care team. And I think it's something that in healthcare, we're very passionate about. Like we want patients to be part of their health experience because then they'll have more autonomy, ownership over what the plan is and more buy-in to it all. I will say I am the daughter of a parent that suffers from a chronic illness. And let me tell you, I've had a lot of conversations with my dad where he says to me, I just don't know why they won't just tell me what to do. Just tell me what you want me to do. And I'm like, dad, they've told you what to do in the past. And did you do it? How do we transition into that? And I don't know if you've seen that as a transformation over your career, Karen, with patients, but I do feel like there is a hesitancy sometimes among patients to get active and to make decisions. And I don't know if it's maybe that he didn't get enough information or he's not like trusting, or if it's just that he's used to an old process of just tell me what to do and no, I may not do it, but at least I didn't have to make a decision. Back to that individualized thing, right? I think I had the benefit of my grandparents living well into their 90s. And I think a story that comes to mind for me is when my grandfather was probably, oh, I don't know, I was out of nursing school. So he probably was in his 80s. And he had always had an enlarged prostate. And of course, we all know it was either benign or it was cancer. But he just kept going down to the VA having his checks every however many months they told him to and checking his meds and then having his hypertension check, his high blood pressure check. And so he finally got to the point where his prostate was causing him trouble to urinate. So he had to come in for a procedure. I was a nurse manager at the time and I went to visit him after his surgery and he's sitting there in the bed and he says, all right, I got the big C. In the olden days, that was what people called cancer because they didn't want to say the word. And I think it was 88 or 86. And I said, okay, all right, what do you want to do? And he says, I want to go home. I said, well, do you want to treat the cancer? And he's like, no, I don't think I do. I said, all right. Well, in comes his young primary care physician, because that's back when they took care of you when you're in the hospital. And she was a good friend of mine. And she says, all right, Mr. Murphy, here's the deal. We're going to do the bone scan. We're going to do this. We're going to do that. We can do this on Thursday, yada, yada, yada. And he looked at her and very quizzically, and I said, Debbie, I don't think he wants to treat the cancer. And she was like, what? And he looked at her and he said, I'm 80 some odd years old. He says, I'm okay. I don't need to do this. I don't want to do this. And so she's like, oh, wow, Mr. Murphy. Okay. And then she left and he said, what do you think? I said, well, the treatment is sometimes worse than the disease. So I said, how do you want to do this? And so those are all the conversations we had. And as we were closing our conversation, he said to me, you can't tell your grandmother. And I'm like, oh, for God's sake. Anyways, that was our little secret. He lived another five or six years and then wow. passed away very quietly in his sleep. Ultimately, he made decisions. He got the information he needed. He decided he didn't want to do anything about it. And he owned it. He was very content to treat the symptoms as he went along. And he had very few, yeah. which very lucky, right? Great gene pool. But that's one of those transformational moments when you learn the importance of a patient having information. And my job, of course, was then to talk with my dad and my aunt, my uncle about Graham's choices. But you get an understanding that this is an adult human who has been a contributing member of society for any number of years and with the right information can tell you what they want. So let's not hide it. That was a transformational moment for me as a family member. 
and as a new nurse leader on a unit that took care of patients who were pretty sick. Did you feel that that informed any of the decisions you made in the future? Like, is that a story that has stuck with you as things have come up, whether as a young nurse leader or even now as a chief nursing executive? Always. We make up a lot of contrived scales and things like that for us to measure things against. And sometimes we don't know the pain scale. We made that up so we could figure out how to help people with pain because we wanted people to be pain-free. I think over time, we've learned that many people are not pain-free. And many people don't need to be medicated because they hit a five on a pain scale. And I think understanding what I learned from my grandfather has caused me to ask questions a little differently. And I don't do a good enough job with my family on that. My son has a bad shoulder and his comment to me one day is that, you know, the nurse said on a scale of zero to 10, what's your pain right now? And he said a five and he doesn't like to take medication at all. And so she goes, oh, I'm going to go get you something. He goes, it's always a five. She went, what? I live with a five. He says, I'm fine. And that put me over the edge. I don't know what it did to her, but it was one of these, oh my God, we never ask. We ask what your score is, but we don't put it in context. Yeah. So I think that's one of the things I've learned. Your signs and symptoms, your recommended procedures are a textbook for what we believe we should do. But in the context of your life as a person, and patient at that moment in time, how does it fit? And that's the job of a nurse. As the advocate for that patient, did I ask that question? Did I understand to say that, nope, it's always a fine for this guy. I think we got to really reassess how we're going to medicate him. And it might be outside of the normal parameters, but that's okay because we do individualized care planning. So same two or three things. And you can apply those things to any life situation, including leadership. Did I ask? Did I evaluate the context? Let's actually talk about leadership and how it's evolved, Karen. And from your perspective, maybe you could take me back to as a frontline nurse leader, but how has that transformed for you over the years? I think for me, well, there's a lot of different things, but as far as my responsibility as a leader, my entire career has just been an expansion of the number of people I take care of or provide care to. When I was an ICU nurse, I had two patients. When I became a charge nurse on an inpatient unit, I had 24 patients plus the staff who cared for them. And then you just transition that across my entire leadership career. As a new nurse manager, I had about 60 nurses and support staff, and I had about 40 beds. To today, where I have thousands of patients that I am responsible to make sure we have a really strong approach to care delivery and that we have the professional practice where it needs to be sure we deliver that care to make sure that we're promoting you know, the health and safety of our patients and the high quality of care they need in any setting. So that's 4,400 nurses. That's it. But it all comes down to the same core. And it's Understanding your role as a leader, and I have a funny story for that. When you're a new leader, you think you have to know and do everything. And this is a really small, inconsequential thing, but we were trying to plan the Christmas party, and I was really new in my role, or I should say the holiday party. And I used to do the holiday parties when I was a staff nurse in the emergency department all the time. No one was stepping up. So I said, you know what? I'll handle it. So totally forgot about it because I was so busy. Made the reservation last minute. 
And suddenly I'm in a staff meeting one day and I said, I didn't need to do this. I didn't need to be the expert or the person to do this. And that was probably my first aha moment about, I don't have to do everything. We had the holiday party, we had a blast, but ultimately I didn't need to do everything. And I think that was a relief in some ways. And it also laid the groundwork for the team there and I to work together to create a new care delivery model. Because what we learned was each of us had a job and it was our expertise in that job that we brought to the table as key stakeholders to have a conversation about what things could look like with a commitment to safety and quality and our patients at the center of our conversation. So that just continues to fuel the importance of connections and relationships and the significance that they play no matter where we are and what we do in healthcare and beyond. But that was new leader aha moment number one. (laughs) Yeah, that's a great aha moment because we've always struggled with boundaries, I feel like, especially in nursing. Nurses have this tendency to just sort of hop, put their hat in, do tons of things outside the scope, and then end up having a lot more responsibilities than what really they can manage. And now you're in a situation where you feel like your responsibilities that you had in the first place, you can't do in the best way that you can, because you have too many other things now on your shoulders, whether that be a holiday party or something else. I think you bring up a great point, Rebecca, because one of the things people have to do as a leader today is be sure that there isn't a resource for that particular thing in your system. If you need to do something with care coordination or you need to do something with some kind of thing that needs to get fixed somewhere, Rather than trying to orchestrate things yourself or purchase a service yourself, I'm oversimplifying this, but it becomes, what do I have? When I start to write a newsletter, for example, where do I start with that? How do I assess what I need to do? And the first thing you have to do is look outside to make sure there isn't a service or a resource within your organization to do that. When you need help with a patient or, you know, That nurse leader, whether it's a person in a department or a unit, or it's a CNO, who are my key stakeholders and what are the resources they need and where are those resources? And I would say that probably 80% of the time that resource lives in your organization. They may or may not have been used to providing a service to nursing, however, because we never asked. And sometimes, you know, assumption can really mess you up. We assume that marketing would know to step in to help us with something because they're omniscient, which we know they're not, right? So we can't make any assumption with what we do. And we have to be sure that we're articulate when we ask for something. You know, we need to have language that people understand. We have to confirm consensus with words people understand. So it gets back to relationships and connections and being clear. Absolutely. And it's interesting to think about what you're referring to. And then you had just talked about relationships and connections. And I want to talk about that for a minute because you're talking about this concept of resourcing on multiple levels, right? There's resourcing of, I need to, like, I have a particular initiative at hand right now. I want to understand the full scope of it. I want to leverage all the things that I can so that I can maximize my impact here. And I don't have to spend too much time recreating the wheel. And then there's this piece of resourcing through people. 
of like relationships. And it's not even necessarily like, hey, I'm going to call this person and ask them for advice necessarily. But it's like the support network we have that actually help us resource for a tough day or to be able to get through the next sort of challenge. Can you talk a little bit about the relationships and connections piece and how you've seen that be impactful, both as like a frontline nurse, but also in leadership? I don't don't even remember who told me this a long time ago, but you play for two teams at work. You play for the team you're on and you play for the team you coach. So for me today, I'm nursing's coach, but I'm a member of the CEO's team. That means there are two roles that I play. And the team I'm on, the CEO's team, that group of people are the people that I rely on and I trust to work on different things and keep each other informed because we're so busy and it's such academic healthcare and medical centers are very complex and there are a thousand things going on at one time. But because of relationships that we've made with one another on that team, we all know the position we play. And, you know, sports analogies are not always really good because not everybody plays sports. But when you think about the fact that as nursing, I am the subject matter expert for nursing. Santiago is a subject matter expert for strategic planning and marketing with our community. And Rob is the medical expert and Richard is our operational expert. And, you know, there are about 12 people on the team. Each of us brings our expertise to the table. And you know, the nice thing is nobody second guesses the expertise. And that doesn't happen all the time. But I think that's the one lovely thing that we have here as a team. If there's a clinical quality issue, the medical officer and I get together and we talk about it or we bring it to each other's attention. And then if there's operational things that go into it, we loop in Richard right away. We're creating a safety net or a web, and we share the information with people. We don't keep it close. And then on the team I coach, I'm trying to make sure that those kinds of interactions and relationships are created across that team. And that's with the whole team of nursing leaders. So it gets a little bit more complex because they all know nursing, but sometimes it's easy to assume that they know each other's path. And it's not always true. Having A safe place to have that dialogue is another one of the things that I have on my plate as the coach. It's making that playbook, right? That's probably something that I've learned as a leader as well. It's to rely on the people you have around you and trust. I am really very fortunate in this situation here. We have a very trusting and supportive environment. Not everybody has that. And sometimes when you're brand new to an organization, you need to find that. And it takes a lot of time because you have to look somebody in the eye and sit down with them and learn who they are. So we're right back to relationships again. And, you know, you're getting at, I think, what it looks like to have a culture of trust where people can really feel like they can share challenges with another expert, another leader, and to be able to feel like not have that sense of, if I share this, it's going to look poorly on me, but rather I'm looking to them as an expert here. And together we are going to be so much more powerful. And if I trust their expertise here, we can get to the right solution because you also come with your own 
set of expertise in that conversation. And that's true for the nursing leadership team as well, where each of them have their own expertise. I think about trust because I think trust is something very hard to build, first of all. And I also feel like during the pandemic, there was a lot of mistrust and earning that back has been a challenge for our industry, I think, overall. And now seeing some of the mass exodus that's happening of our amazing workforce, it makes people second guess. Like nursing is the most trusted industry in the world, but why are folks leaving? What would you say to that? I think a sacred trust was broken during COVID. And unfortunately, I think it was with the public and not necessarily all people, but I think I remember one nurse saying to me, you know, we got everybody through the first wave. They invent a vaccine. I'm taking care of the second wave and they're telling me that it's all fake. And that was devastating. A lot of nurses, and we saved a lot of lives here. And a lot of it was backbreaking work. For us, the COVID units that were caring for those patients were taking six people to flip a patient onto their belly multiple times a day to ensure that their lung fields were open and they were able to breathe. And then to have those people tell you and their families tell you it just isn't real, that was devastating. And to have them talk about the vaccine like it was poison was startling because nursing is evidence-based learning. And so it was really hard. And I think since that time, people just in general have not necessarily been doing well. And I don't know if it's from two years of being isolated and not having to be social, or if it's from not feeling good. I don't know what it is, but we've had a significant rise in workplace violence. And it's not only patient and family against workforce, it's incivility amongst people on your team. There's a lot of work still to be done. And even in the safe environment, some of that is happening, but that's when you have to be tough too, because a lot of what we're talking about now is nuanced. This is not the stuff that's easy to see and easy to act on because usually people don't do it in front of the leaders. We then have a personal accountability, regardless of our role in an organization or on a team, to speak up on behalf of each other. Absolutely. It makes me think of something that you had said, actually. So I'm going to quote you here. You said, we need to not take things personally, but we need to treat people personally. Can you share what you mean by that? The other life lesson that you learn when you've been working with people for a really long time is you really can't bring your ego to work. Well, you shouldn't really have a big ego anyway. If you're a member of my family, that was always a big deal for my parents. They were always like, a little humility goes a long way. But I think when you think about treating people, well, I think back to the personally part, if you take things personally, you lose your objectivity and things become very emotional. And when you infuse an amount of emotion into that. You're not staying fact related. You're not staying focused on a topic at hand. You're spinning off and telling a whole different story. So I think you have to really go into conversations, especially hard ones or situations that are going to be difficult with a level of intentionality to stay patient or person focused and to be supportive because you know what? Nobody comes to work to be bad or to do bad things. There's something behind that. So that's where you have to treat people personally. It's back to that individualized care. And you provide individualized care, whether it's to a patient, a family member, or a person you work with. 
So when that person, when you have that conversation, it becomes a question of, how'd that make you feel? How can I help you? Show a little vulnerability, be authentic, be transparent. You don't have the answer, tell them you don't, but you'll do your best, right? And, and all those things you learn in Crucial Conversations 101 and all this kind of stuff, it's all pertinent, but it has to be genuine. When you engage in a personal relationship or a personal conversation, you can't go into it knowing you have to hit four points. You have to go into it and genuinely want to be with the person and have the conversation, whether it's a conversation you want to have or not. And it also reminds me of what you said earlier. Your son was at a five or you have someone on the pain scale at a five, but they don't feel like they need any medication because they're okay. They live at a five. If they're a nine, yeah, maybe they'll consider it. And then it's almost the same thing applies in this context, like knowing where the person is, where they're sitting, yeah. what their story is, what their threshold is, and being able to have a real conversation and connection with them because we all come to this differently. I think about how you came to this work, Karen, and who you are, how I come to my work and the, my family, you kind of mentioned your family a few times, my family motto is strong like bull. And it's something that I really lean on. And I also have an awareness that I may come across a little bit more bullish than maybe I mean to be in certain instances. So that's something that I know I've been working on and aware of as a leader, but we all come to this in different ways. Yeah. I think with age, you start to soften your edges and you have to think about where you come from because strong like bull, I was always taught that regardless of everybody's opinion, what's the right thing to do and keep moving. And so a lot of times early on in my career, the objectives seemed pretty obvious to me. And so we just kept driving. But the fact of the matter was, is that objective held various perspectives and emotions for the other people in the group. And to really get people to buy into moving to the objective, you have to build consensus. So you have to hear that person who's sad about change or the person who's fearful of something else or excited about something and has gone down another rabbit hole rather than staying focused on the objective. It's that constant tending, right? It's like when you have a meeting or you have a conversation, while you want to really jump into the conversation, you still have to tend it, you know, not only keeping it on time, but keeping it on point. And there are times where you need to just let it go. And there are times where you need to pull it in. As leaders, we have to listen all the time. We have to listen to body language. We have to listen to eye contact. And we have to listen to who sat next to each other. The amount of emotional intelligence you need when you're working with people is uh, the more you can get, the better. So <laughs> that's all. Absolutely. And Karen, I'd be remiss to ask you about this. And we were just talking a little bit about the trust piece and how the has impacted nursing and some of the challenges that we're dealing with now, but you mentioned this a little bit earlier. No one comes into this work to do a mediocre job, right? Everyone is coming into healthcare to care for patients the best of their ability so that patients can get well. And not only that, but that they can have a good experience. When you think about your calling to this work, what is it that gets you the most excited or really lights you up? I think it's people. It's engaging with nurses at the bedside, rounding, having town halls, and getting to a place with them where they feel comfortable to say, oh, this really stinks. I don't like it. And I know a lot of leaders don't like to hear that, but boy, if you hear that, you've got a place to start. And this is not a bed of roses. 
we get inundated with a gazillion emails a day and we have all sorts of stuff, boxes we have to check and things like that. But ultimately, we're here to take care of people. And as a leader, I have two groups I take care of. I take care of the ones that are here for help and I take care of those who take care of them. And it's knowing how extraordinary that work is that nurses do and how important their voice is in driving change in healthcare. We're the people who are closest to the bedside. We're the people responsible for the patient's voice. So we have to be sure that whether it's at the bedside or the boardroom, that voice gets heard. While I can do everything internally to make sure people do this and share and take best care of patients and grow themselves professionally, as a leader in nursing, I have to turn outside also and make sure that we're doing the same thing across the different constituents who need to know what we do and need to know how healthcare can benefit from nursing's voice as we try to make changes that will result in promoting health, improving prevention, and caring for people and managing disease. Beautifully said. Thank you for that, Karen. Was there anything in closing today that you wanted to share or something that you wanted to put out there to young aspiring leaders today? Some advice? Yes. For all of you who want to do this and you're just getting started, do it. I think that one of the biggest opportunities you have, especially as a new and aspiring leader, is to learn the importance of the strength of teams. When you work together with staff, you start to realize that we're greater than the sum of our parts. And having had that opportunity early in my career, working with the team as a new nurse manager, we were able to build a model on that unit that not only reduced length of stay, but allowed us to barter with hospital administration to have a gym put on the floor and get our nurses station renovated to accommodate the changes we've made. And part of that was because of the ingenuity of the staff. We were able to create a self-directed model that provided exceptional care, very personalized care to our patients. And it was so exemplary in the mind of the nursing officer at the time that he had us go to the boardroom and present it. And that was in the olden days where we just had a flip chart. But, you know, to get all that done and to sit back and of course you're sweating bullets through your palms and to have the CFO look at you and say, is she really a nurse? How come she knows this? How come this team knew to do this? That probably was my first insight into people know they need to have nurses, but they don't know what we can do. And they don't know the scope and the depth and the breadth of the things that they can accomplish if they take advantage of us, even if it's a department level team to promote and propel healthcare into a new dimension. So do not ever think your ideas or the ideas of your staff are just the same old. New team, new day, new time. Go for it. That's it. Perfect. Karen, thank you so much for being on the show today. Well, thank you. I really appreciate the time we had together, Rebecca. It was fun. I'm Rebecca Corin. Thanks for listening to Moments Move Us. Remember, when you put people first, your actions can move others in unexpected ways. Be sure to follow wherever you get your audio.